All right, welcome to the nose. Actually, you just missed a really good nose segment about microwave ovens. Which Sorry. Unfortunately, we are <laughs> unable to share with you right now. But who knows? We actually we we did roll on it, so we've got it. Uh, so, but it's not in our plans today. Stocking and we're, stuffer. We're inflexible. <laughs> Oh, we're inflexible about our plans. We must do our plans. And when I say we, I mean Rebecca Castellani, a music writer for the Red Hook Star Review, Tanisha Dugan, a producing associate at TheaterWorks, and Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Uh, so one thing that we all did this week, and we'll talk about this later in the show, was see the movie Parasite, uh, which is a South Korean film about economic disparities. <laughs> that sounds um, didactic, and the film isn't anything but. It's as if... I don't know. It's as if Quentin Tarantino directed a Noam Chomsky book or something. Um, anyway, <laughs> we'll, that's Good. great. We'll yeah. come to that. We'll come to that. Uh, but uh, be, at the beginning, we're going to talk about two things. Hopefully, we'll have time for both of them. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to talk about what um, did you did you coin the term performative arrests? Um, or was that in one of the articles we read? It wasn't. I, maybe, right. Yes, I coined that. So, so let's give Tanisha Dugan full credit. Performative arrests. So our friends uh, like um, uh, Sam Watterson, who sometimes even listens to this show, and Joe, of course, led by Jane Fonda and and Ted Danson and people like that, they're getting arrested, particularly on this uh, these Friday events on Capitol Hill. Uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, about that and about Jane Fonda's red coat. Uh, but first – we're going to have like our umpteenth okay. conversation about cancel culture. Uh, although I think what we're talking about this time is slightly new. At least it's sparked by an article we all read in the New York Times about the fact that there is sort of now this parallel culture developing among the canceled. So there are podcasts. Uh, I just listened to Walk-In's Welcome, which is uh, hosted by somebody who was canceled for something. And now she has a lot of guests on who have been canceled for other things. And we say cancel, obviously, we mean this notion of people who have committed some kind of violation, uh, either by their uh, unsavory opinions uh, or their language, their words, or in some cases, their deeds. So people who um, have been removed or have suffered attempts to remove them from the, I don't know, from the main, mainstream discourse. I hope I'm doing that justice. Anyway, so the Rubin Report, well, Walk-Ins Welcome, our podcasts. Uh, there's a publication called The Quillette. Uh, there's a, a book called Galileo's Middle Finger. All of these things are attempts to sort of address this whole question uh, of <clears> – <throat> Or at least sort of create an environment where people who have been canceled or suffered attempts at that can talk about what that's like and, and can maybe have a second chance to make their argument or, or whatever. So I know, Bill, you're just such a keen student of this whole question. So get us off on some lane here. Well, I mean, I know I, who I would like to cancel today. I'd <laughs> love to cancel Michael Bloomberg, but that's a topic for another day. Right. Maybe you'll talk about that on the scramble yep, Monday, on, yep. on Monday. <laughs> The problem – so let me start by saying I understand the impulse behind it. In fact, my whole academic career has been built on writing about real racism in the media industries that's existed for a really long time. That's, that's, that's what I write about. And so I, I get the impulse of kind of – Talking back to really offensive speech and to uh, egregious displays of obnoxiousness, 
the problem with cancel culture is it's a very, very sharp knife. And once you start waving it around, you might just end up cutting yourself because I think every single one of us has done something that we could be canceled for. And what kind of a culture are we going to have if there is such a kind of narrow lane to walk in that people have to constantly be aware of, oh, I can't say this, I can't say that, I have to censor myself about this. So while I understand the impulse, I think it's a, you know, I use, in our emails, I use the phrase guillotine. And I I think there are other ways to respond than to just try to completely silence or or push someone off. And as you say, Colin, no one, no one is going to kind of come to some great enlightenment when they're shamed. They're just going to retreat and maybe they're going to find other like people to ally with. Right. I, I guess, you know, I mean, I, I was in fact listening to this podcast uh, called Watkins Welcome and they, they were talking – the host and the guest were both people who kind of came from the left and they said, look, when we were growing up, it was the right that wanted to censor various kinds of culture that they thought was either offensive or too transgressive or too openly sexual or and, – and in their lifetimes, the shift that they have seen is that more or maybe equal amounts of censoria seems to be coming from the left. You can't say this. You can't say that. It, that's insufficiently – Sadly, I think that's true. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Like on the other hand, Rebecca, I'm going to go to Tanisha last because I know where she is on all this. Um, so uh, um, I think also, Rebecca, I mean some of this is kind of a good kind of empowerment, right? Culture was top down for a really long time. You don't like it? Tough darts. That's what it is. You don't own a network. You don't own a publishing house. So I mean digital culture sort of said, well, no, you know, 50 of you could get together and really mess up somebody who you thought was being a jerk. So I don't know. I mean is that a power that could be wielded wisely? <laughs> I don't know. I think the, the democratization of this whole process does scare me a little bit because as we can see, the fallout is vast. I mean, I mean, the, another article we read in tandem with this dealt with the cancel culture in high schools and how teenagers are doling this out for each other. And in some cases, it's used as a, a learning implement. Uh, you know, there was a – what was the phrase they used? It was um, – oh, I'll remember in a minute. But this idea that, you know, you can use the cancel culture to help educate kids that aren't necessarily, you know, getting it the first time when you say, hey, it's not appropriate to use that language and the kid doesn't respond and then to say, OK, we're canceling you. And doing it in kind of a light, playful way, I can understand how that – the impetus behind that is pure, but it can be taken to such an extreme that then you have kids, you know, really suffering for it. I, I think back to my high school experience and I'm so glad this wasn't a thing. I suffered from terrible social anxiety and I certainly said and did plenty of things that would have been worthy of canceling me. And I think it would have destroyed me if I had been canceled by my peers in high school. I really do. So I, I'm probably just too sensitive for the world in general, but – this, this distresses me that the high school kids are doing this to each other. Well, I'm, and, and Tanisha, I think this will set up where you're going. I mean there's another question and it kind of gets raised in the New York Times article we read, which is like ultimately which group do you want to go stand with? The people who are kind of funny and causing a lot of trouble and, you know, or the people who are saying, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. I mean for the most part, a lot of us do gravitate over towards that area where people are exploring stuff. Maybe. I, so I love words. I'm a thesaurus junkie. 
I think the word cancel, I think we live in sort of an outrage culture. And so I think the word cancel has more weight than actually what's happening. And the fact that there is a place for quote unquote canceled people to go and be together (laughs) and have a group indicates to me that no one's actually quite canceled. And I would suggest that we were canceled. Middle school is all about canceling people, whatever that means in That's 2019. True. And always but, has been. And always yeah. has been. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think we're getting caught up in what the word actually means. But the behavior has been with us forever. Sure. And we have to put guardrails around people. It's, you know, boundaries, some would call it, personal boundaries. But I don't think that means, you know, you brought up some amazing artists we love. I'm never going to stop listening to Michael Jackson, point blank, period. Me neither. I am going to stop listening to R. Kelly. Me too. But (laughs) I will sometimes step in the name of love. Does not mean that I believe that one should abuse 14-year-old girls. I think there's like a nuance in this conversation that it's lacking. And I think the word cancel in and of itself is a word that doesn't have a whole lot of nuance. Do I want to have dinner with? Woody Allen? Probably not. Mm. I also don't love his movies, but I don't think they're meant for me any any way. Um, <laughs> Good catch. So, yeah. you know, yeah. Nice grab there. So, well, let's, let's pick something that is like a, prob- a problem for one of us or maybe more than one of us. So one of the artists who came up was Morrissey. Now, I, I have to say, I want to back up and say this. I was on Twitter one day and there was somebody who I kind of know on Twitter and who was saying something like, yeah, I used to love Morrissey, uh, but I guess I can't anymore or something. And I, I had actually just linked over to this Morrissey-Nancy Sinatra uh, collaboration that I had really enjoyed like, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. I said, what? There's always this. And then she wrote back and she said, but yeah, but all the you know, xenophobia. And I, I wrote back, I said, I'm really sorry. I didn't know about all that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I feel like this, the first problem is it is really hard to keep up with this stuff. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson was mentioned in the New York Times article we read. Canceled. I'd, yeah, I'd forgotten what she was in trouble for. Like I really had, I had to look it up. I had no memory. Uh, it was for playing or being, allowing yourself to be cast as a trans person. In and the movie. an Asian woman. And an Asian woman, yeah. So yeah. It, cancel me twice. But, yeah. cancel, but don't cancel her. Cancel the dude the who decided that that right. was a good idea. And there wasn't just one dude. It no. was probably like eight dudes. Right. So And they're like, but Scarlett Johansson's hot, so yeah. who cares? But let's, let's – Bill, I happen to know Bill likes Morrissey. So, so let's sort of go there. I, I, I have to admit I like Morrissey. Shame, shame me if you want. But I never had the illusion that somehow he was a good guy. I liked the music. I do think his his flirtation with the with the British far right is extremely awful and I despise that about him. But I I maybe maybe people would would disagree with me. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me. It doesn't change the music that he's produced, which I've responded to. Um, maybe there are some lines that would go so far that would result in that. The, the only thing I would say about what Tanisha said about nobody is, is ever really canceled, I think in Morrissey's case, yeah, Morrissey's not going to be canceled. Morrissey's an international superstar who's going to be just fine if a few people don't like him anymore. But there are people whose careers actually are canceled on on or at least or at least one aspect of their career is canceled on on a, on a nose a while ago um, we talked about what happened to the film critic David Edelstein and he made a stupid joke on Facebook and then fresh air or whoever just responded by just 
firing him for for one just kind of silly, stupid joke. I think we could make an argument that... But I bet the man's working again. No, he's fine. Like, he's doing other stuff. But, okay, I think we can make an argument that the NFL canceled Colin Kaepernick. I think there's Mm -hmm. plenty of evidence to suggest that that was a deliberate thing. And, yeah, Colin Kaepernick is just fine and he's making big bank from Nike. But his football career was canceled because they didn't like what he was doing. And so I... I hear your point, but I do think it can have a really negative impact on on people's lives. And the less power you have, the more likely it is that you can be really hurt by it in some very troubling ways. I would also say the less power you have, the less likely you're getting canceled because no one's really paying attention to what it is you're doing or saying. The things I kept noting, though, in the articles was it wasn't they were talking necessarily so much about like the professional fallout associated to it. It was the interpersonal fallout. And this one journalist who just, I read the article that she wrote that she was vilified for, for The Stranger. And it was a good 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 article article. and it was good journalism. And for her to lose friendships over that simply because the internet decided that it didn't like the stance she was taking is, that really does upset me. But I would say that, like, I think that's a great example because I think that particular article where uh, she's talking about uh, sort of Trans people and uh, young young people uh, being given hormones at a, at a really vulnerable time, well before it it suggested they have really understood who they are yet. Um, and I think there's a conversation to be had there, right. and that's a real dirty, uncomfortable not straightforward mm-hmm. conversation. And mm-hmm. I think that there are some people who just sure. don't want to have the conversation. But she didn't assert an opinion in that article. It was just but journalism. She opened up a can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that which I understand. And some people want to run away from And I the, want people to open up cans. And yeah. some people like I want people to be Pandora. Like how can you have a culture and a democracy if nobody is willing to to go there because they're afraid of losing friends. I'm a prickly person. So honestly, if someone's going to defriend me because they don't agree with my opinion about something, I'm glad to be right. rid of them. It's a purge in a way. But I think when you're but, taking this with the, with the younger population and canceling as it is on the internet, to with, me, is very different with young people, than it's very, a young person. Yeah. In a way, that crouches into the bullying era. And I understand middle school is like that. Kids are nasty to each other in middle school. For generations. For generations. And when you cancel, you shame. It's right. really about shame. It's more the no. public aspect of that, taking something that right now for us exists solely in the digital world and bringing it into real life. And I think you see that across the board with digital memes that suddenly then make that jump and that are impacting people's physical and mental well-being. And maybe that's the pendulum, right? We're trying to we're living in a shameless time and we're trying to understand where hmm. like what is the group shaming that we're willing to exert on yeah. people so that we can live in the society we want to right. live, right? And there's going to be some I think uh, fall off and some uh, tragedies and some folks left on the side of the road. Right. And I, you know, one that. thing that you said before, I, what I, was, you know, if you're kind of nobody, then it's kind of hard to cancel you. I think it's also really hard to cancel you if you're really like a big somebody. Right. Right. The danger is out there in the middle ground. I mean, Bill Maher does stuff all the time, Where including using the N-word on the air and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, that, that a person in a more of a middle ground could easily be canceled sure. for. But he's sort of too big to fail at this point. I mean, Michael know? Jackson seemingly is too big to be canceled. And I struggle to listen to his music now. But then I reminded myself constantly Who's of all the bad? writers. I mean, think about every writer I admire from, you know, modernity and backwards has done or said something completely unsavory that counteracts my experience with the art. And I think it, this art versus the artist question comes down to an, an issue of, like, where does your line? Like, where is something It used that, to be that, like, artists were 
the sort of savages. Yeah. You know, and we just sort of assumed that they were terrible people. Yep. And Ezra we didn't Pound's expect a Nazi them. Now. And yeah. I don't know, you know, how we got to, well, I do know how we got, but I think it's interesting that we are now asking people to be perfect, mm. which feels odd. I was sending, actually, it's funny that you say that because I was sending, he was emailing a friend of mine uh, about some something that I, like uh, just a perspective I wanted him to have because I knew he wasn't feeling too great about something. And there's this Ezra Pound quote that I love. Problematic faith. Right. So what, oh. the, the, the one, I, you yeah. know, I wanted to do, this, you know, what thou lovest well remains, the rest is yep. dross. Uh, what thou lovest well shall not be rough from thee. So I began it by saying, it's... I, it's too bad that he was crazy and a fascist <laughs> and an anti-Semite because he got a lot of other things right. And then I put the quote in there. But it's kind of like you now have to, to post. To predicate. Right, like, yeah, I exactly. do not subscribe to these beliefs in their entirety. Like, <laughs> um, like, uh, but I, I don't know what else you do because we do know things. I mean it's impossible to regard Ezra Pound – neutrally at this point. I've, you know? I've written both my graduate and undergraduate works on T.S. Eliot, and he was somebody that was notoriously anti-Semitic. And it's, it was, became increasingly difficult for me to evaluate the art without, and, and part of T.S. Eliot's you know, oeuvre is this tradition in the individual talent that the artist must surrender to the art if the art's going to have any meaning. And I think that he really kind of leaned into that and was like, who I am as a person can be completely extracted from this. And yet, when you're studying the whole person, the impetus behind that output, it comes into the picture. You can't help it. Miles Davis created what I think is the greatest jazz music that's ever been created across a range of subgenres and then sometimes left the recording studio and committed terrible acts of domestic abuse. Yep. Yeah. What do you do with that? You're right. Right. All right. Well, one thing we could do is uh, arrest everybody. I'm trying to make a segue here. Um, we could arrest so, everyone. We could arrest everybody and then gradually release them depending on how innocent we I'm thought we were. I'm fine with it. So, amazing. No, that wasn't a good segue. We've but kind anyway. of done the experiment yes. of arresting everybody. It right. hasn't worked out no, it too doesn't well. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. So, no, I'm try- trying to make a clumsy segue to uh, something that is happening right now. It might even be happening right right now because it's Friday. <laughs> and if it's Friday, that means Jane Fonda is getting arrested. Uh, she, I believe, is up for her fifth consecutive uh, <laughs> arrest today. Uh, as part of a coordinated act of disobedience uh, that I think it was sort of started by Greta Thunberg, uh, the environmental, the very young environmental activist. Uh, but it, it is now the case that uh, famous people go up on Capitol Hill uh, and participate in demonstrations and wind up in zip tie handcuffs. And uh, for some reason or other, Jane Fonda, because she's also announced that she's bought the last piece of clothing she's ever going to buy in her life, and it's this red coat, and she gets arrested in it. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, so I, I'm going to go to the person who coined the phrase performative arrest. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark. Take yeah. it away. So, so, I, call so, it, yeah. I call it that because uh, let's be real. The only people who are being performatively arrested look like Jane Fonda and her ilk. So, um, And my guess is, you know, the zip ties and all means it's easily untied and they are getting home for Friday night pizza. Um, so I wonder, I think, what it actually is doing um, for the cause that she um, is, is, you know, for climate change. I think, you know, Jane has made her career and her fame off of uh, being a political charge. Yep. And I think she wants to go out in her in, in a blaze in her red coat, uh, storming the Capitol steps. Um, but I'm not quite sure it actually has any effect other than showing up on Us Weekly every week, which is fun, um, but not necessarily fruitful. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether I think that's – well, anyway, let's, let's go around the table here. So, Bill, uh, yeah, you take it. So I think that one thing we should think about is that activism is always performative. I think active part, part. I mean, a protest is a performative act, right? That that's that's the whole point. We're we're protesting as a performance in order to bring attention to something. To me, the interesting question here is whether celebrity involvement in these kind of things is productive or not productive. You know, the right tends to really despise these Hollywood liberals who they see as dilettantes who just get involved in something because it's the cool thing to do, and then they go home to their you know, multi-million dollar mansions. Jane Fonda is a real activist and she's been a real activist and she's been despised by the right since the Vietnam era. And I, you know, I, okay, so she lives in a multi-million dollar mansion. I think this is something that she actually really cares about. And celebrities are also human beings who I think have the same right to get involved in these things as we do. And if, if the fact that they are celebrities can help to bring attention to a cause, then I'm all for it. I'll, I'll go back to Colin Kaepernick again. Uh, you know, the fact that he was Colin Kaepernick helped to spread the message that he was trying to spread to a range of people who probably had no idea initially what he was kneeling for. Still don't. Well, some still don't. You're right. You know, I think I, it's somewhere in the middle for me. I, I certainly was drawn to this story, not for anything other than this really cool red coat and Ted dancing in his cute little newsboy cap. And I was like, well, this is fun. And then I realized what they were protesting for. And I'm like, climate change is less fun. And that was kind of my extent of my involvement in that. And I feel like that's a lot of people's. It's fun to see these figureheads out there fighting the fight. It makes you feel like, what am I doing? I should probably do more. But at the end of the day, I closed the article and went about my day. I didn't. It didn't you know, make me take to the streets to protest climate change. So I, I think it's good. I think anytime somebody who has a platform is going to use that platform for something positive, more power to them. Does it have an immediate impact on the people that are watching that? I don't know. Not. I just wonder if there's a better way. Yeah, that's right. I, mean, I think that's something. why I say it tongue in cheek, this performative arrest, because yeah, yes, they have a platform. Yes, they have a voice. I'm not quite sure other than this, all I know is climate change and red coat. Right. Like, I don't even think there's do anything, anything underneath that that I could take and actually act on. Um, and so that's, I think there's a yes and. Yeah. Like, yes. awesome, oh, yes. be there. Yeah. And I, I what else? A both and. Yeah. 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 So that's how I feel. First of all, I want to say that um, I was driving around uh, on Friday afternoon last week, and, you know, you come out of a store or something, you turn on your car and the interview is happening and you don't know who's talking for a second and there's this kind of croaky sounding voice and I'm thinking, who's that talking to Mary Louise Kelly or whoever? And then it turned out to be Fonda and a couple of things happened in the interview. One of them was, and I just know I, I could put myself in Mary Louise Kelly's place because when you get somebody who's really famous, you're, you're sort of always feeling like they're, they want to go. You know, <laughs> they're tired of this already. And so she starts to wrap up the interview and Fonda goes, can I say a few more things? Oh. And, and she goes on and she has some pretty substantive things to say. And I think that stuff 
sometimes can get bonded with stories and narratives, and we like stories and narratives. So this red coat, she bought it on sale at Neiman Marcus. She says it is the last item of clothing she is ever going to buy. Uh, she wanted it because she wanted something that would be kind of attention-getting and symbolic as she goes on this crusade. Um, on some of her arrests, yeah, she said, yeah, usually it's a misdemeanor. It's 50 bucks and you get out and you go home. She goes, but like on one of those occasions, she was in jail for 20 or 22 hours. She wound up lending the coat to a woman who was cold in the cell because it was really cold there. She wound up taking the coat back from the woman because it turned out there was no mattress to sleep on and she wanted to sleep. So she slept on the red coat. And she said, you know, one of the things I just learned getting arrested is there aren't the kind of mental health support services. And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the people who are in there are you often I'm, – I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but she's basically saying something we know, which is that one of the ways that mental illness is treated in this country is by arresting people. And mm-hmm. people are on the streets and they're in jail and there just aren't places where they can actually get any help. And she's sort of seeing that. So that becomes part of the narrative. And, you know, it gets more attention than if you or I say it because it's Jane Fonda. So I think it's good. Like, I think it's like 100 percent good. And I think those <laughs> symbols can be really, really powerful. I think that, you know, um, symbols are what people remember and they resonate with them. And, and I, I, I think about uh, John Carlos, um, you know, doing mm-hmm. his Olympics protest and, you know, they came to the platform barefoot and they did all of these kind of things that had this, this, this historical resonance and, you know, they raised their fists and that was an image that has stayed with us through centuries. Uh, not, not through centuries. What am I decades. talking about? Through decades. Feels um, like centuries if, over the last decade. Yeah. But, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying that Jane Fonda's red coat is the same as John Carlos's raised fist. But I, I, I do think that there, there can be kind of these powerful protest symbols that do make a little bit of a, you know, because it's all about – chiseling in that little crack in the crevice and then that crack can be expended. expended well, yeah, the fourth further. estate was like, is a distinctly different beast also, right? Now? Like you, you, right. Yeah. I mean, you right. got a chance the to 1960s. hear the things underneath uh, Jane mm. Fonda's protest by virtue of the very narrow place in which you hear and consume media. True. The mass media is literally just the coat and yeah. the zip ties. But that's why and she does And there's nothing it. under it. Yeah. Right. But, but they're not going to do anything yeah. else. Like yeah. it's going to live yeah. there and then it becomes a meme. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, And that's how I consume noise. stuff for yeah. the most part is mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, taking in everything every second of the day. I found that like to exist in the world right now, I cannot do that and go about my day. So it, things trickle down to me through memes. Yeah. And, and then, I think there's got to be an evolution, right? Let's assume that we keep going this way. Yep. That that we understand things in a bite-sized picture, how do we then get to the narrative? Because I don't think that actually filters to well, the masses. It is anymore. a problem. I mean, for so like Ralph Nader, who has been out in front of like every major public safety, consumer, health, uh, waste of taxpayers' money, corruption issue in my lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, but – like he wouldn't occur to him to go get a really eye-catching <laughs> garment, <laughs> you know. And but and you kind of need both, right? right? You need substance, but you also need that theatricality, you know. And and so I, I'm not that's resistant at theatricality. I think that always helps. We love you know iconography in this country. Anything that we can latch onto. Look at the women's march hats. Which I'm not sure if I can use the first part of the word, but. You know, that. Oh, go ahead. Lucy Gelman already did like five times. Oh, okay, cool. Well, the pussy hats is a great example of that. I mean, we, we latch on to things like that and it becomes a motif for the greater cause. So I don't think the red coat is the issue so much as the, you know, this performative arrest. Like what is that actually 
doing yeah. for people like me that don't go and then do a deep dive on Jane Fonda and her activism. We, and the hats we, last, came on the, last comment, sorry. we're going to wrap this the up. The hats came on the back of an election that had lo- had everyone feeling something. Yes. And so it was like paired mm-hmm. in a moment. Yeah. Right? I'm not quite sure if she changed to no. if it were just a, a, a knit hat that yeah. she was a beautiful knit hat that she bought from Neiman Marcus, if it would have the same effect as no. the women's march. Right. I think well, it's the, the hats came on the back of an election that had red hats in it. Um, right. So uh, you know the color red is being used by other people. All right. We have to uh, take a break here, so we'll have time to talk about parasite, which is I think really worth talking about. All right, we're back. We're back. We're going to talk about Parasite. Uh, we're not going to play a clip because everything in the movie is in Korean. Uh, and also they're swearing all the time uh, in Korean. So, um, but uh, it is a, a uh, its first day is in, uh, in wide releases today. It's in 603 theaters. It's already grossed uh, $7.4 million domestically and I think over $100 million worldwide. So it is Bong Joon-ho's most financially successful picture to date. I would like to point out that I think the first Tanisha Dugan appearance on this show was to talk about Snowpiercer. Am I, am I oh, wrong about true. that? Yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah. the first, but it, it was, was first, early one on. Of the first, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, so which is also directed by him. So, this is—it's a difficult movie to describe. But let me just quickly say a little bit to set it up. It is about a family of four living in really dire poverty. Dire poverty, which is not uncommon for for South Korea. South Korea has economic disparities that actually make ours look rather mild by comparison. Uh, so, they're living in dire po- poverty. Nobody as a job and an opportunity opens up at the house of a very, very wealthy one percenter kind of uh, South Korean family. So the son of the family takes that job and then kind of arranges one by one for the other three family members to get jobs, often by sabotaging the person who's actually in the job. So at the end, through not necessarily honorable means, all four of them are now employed under sort of false identities too by this unbelievably clueless um, wealthy family. Uh, and um, obviously there's ways in which the, this is kind of not going to hold together. Something's going to ro- go wrong because they are deceiving the family about who they are. They're not admitting to all being related to one another. Um, and somebody's going to find out something bad is going to happen. I, I'm not going to do any spoilers, but I'm going to say whatever you think is going to happen – it's way worse. <laughs> it's a lot worse <laughs> than what you think is probably going to go wrong. So I don't know, Rebecca. This is a hard movie to talk about because, first of all, to me anyway, it doesn't resemble any movie that I can think of. It isn't like no. this other movie I saw. No, it's definitely there's, – there's very little – I mean minus – Tanisha did – bring up in our emails that us is a cinematically and thematically, you mm. know, a point of comparison, which I think is very smart. Um, but certainly while I was watching it, I thought this was the first of its kind. And I, I've loved Snowpiercer. I actually really liked Okja as well. So I kind of thought I had a sense of the director and this completely changed everything for me. I, uh, 
I, it's hard to describe. It really is. And it was the kind of movie I walked away from unable to articulate, but it has stayed with me. You know, it, it's called Parasite for a reason. It has wheedled its way into my brain, and I find myself thinking about it at odd times during the day with things that I do that wouldn't necessarily in my mind trigger thinking about the movie. So it's definitely wormed its way inside my psyche in a way that I was not anticipating it to do. And for that reason alone, I mean, I always say that even if something, when it's, you know, abrasive initially, if it sticks with you, that's probably a sign of some pretty good art. So uh, in terms of movies I've seen this year, it's one of the best. Describe it, difficult. Describe it without spoilers, difficult. Well, I mean, Bill, one thing, point you made as we were emailing is I think it's both a fairy tale and a deeply realistic movie kind of at the same time. Yeah. It, rather than another film, what it reminds me of most is a very dark, very modern fairy tale. A, and I say a fairy tale, but a fairy tale about the real world. Uh, the reason I say a fairy tale is is part of what happens. Um, and and this, I don't think this is really a spoiler, is that a, f- a friend gifts uh, the son this large, heavy, decorative mm. rock. Um, and then the son betrays him, and that sets all of the rest of it into motion with some very, very negative consequences for the betrayers. But and then bit by bit, each member of the family gets pulled into this. But then I think that the, as as Rebecca said, the title and then just the whole notion of betrayal, I think, is deepened and becomes very multi-dimensional. When you start really thinking about what, who are the real parasites and who are the real betrayers as this family gets involved with a very, very wealthy, very, very comfortable and clueless and self-absorbed uh, another family. And, 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 and that's where – An Americanized the, family. And, that, and, and that's where the conflict really originates from. Global. Well, they're global, but they are using. Yeah. They're doing that, you know, American names. The, yeah, so the, they're laughably global. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, one thing that I, I would say about this, Tunisia, is that I, I my reactions to this movie are very similar to to Rebecca's and to Bill's. But it's not necessarily a movie that I would say to anybody I met, oh, you have to go see Parasite. (laughs) You absolutely have to go see this movie. You're really going to enjoy it a lot. I mean, I I wouldn't really be on that kind of footing with this movie. Yeah, it's it's so funny when uh, it was floated that this was the the sort of big topic for the week. Uh, I had uh, DM'd Jonathan, one of the producers, uh, Instagram post from uh, Questlove because he had posted how amazing mm. the movie was and in the comments was Chris Rock saying exactly the same thing and I just thought to myself okay well now I'm intrigued to see this thing because here are these two sort of culture icons really giving an endorsement for this movie let me go check it out um, and when the movie turns I immediately went to us like I immediately was like oh I know what this movie yeah. is about, and I know what this movie is trying to do. Um, and so for that, I uh, it is of a, a trend. Mm. Um, I think it it is appropriately uh, equal to us. Um, I just should quickly say, she's talking, and Rebecca was talking, about the Jordan Peele movie, Us. Yes. It could be a little oh, bit confusing sorry. for people. As, as opposed to us sitting yeah, at and, this, and, this and talking. The more, Pronouns. Right. Yeah. The more right. you think about it, the more of those kind of connections there are. Yeah, and so yeah. and so and and because of that 
sort of connection for me. I was like, of course, it's going to be seen throughout the year at the award shows. And of mm-hmm. course, it's going to be given. I will tell you, I prefer Snowpiercer 100% um, to this. Yeah, um, because I think both uh, classes are sort of treated um, as icons as opposed to people. Mm. Um, and I'm not quite sure if that actually pushes. In the current film. In in Parasite. Yeah, right. Uh, and I'm not quite sure if that pushes it's, the conversation forward in it, any meaningful ways. It is an allegory yeah. in some ways. And just like fairy tales, the characters kind of embody certain ideals and philosophies rather than being totally and completely real humans. Yeah, I think they were all Tropes. the worst of their yeah. classes. And that, to me... Uh, in the same way as cancel culture, I, have a I think lot of the empathy. nuance of it uh, was lacking for me. I do have a lot of empathy for um, the sun, though. Um, there, to, to me, and and I and I won't say exactly what it is because it would be kind of a spoiler. But there are some heartbreaking aspects of of the son and, and his relationships to his father and. So, so I agree with you that you know, in terms of they did function more. Um, as philosophical ideals than as than as real, you know, fully embodied human beings. I, I still, though, manage to have a lot of empathy for them as characters. You know, one question I have, and it is a question, and I wish we had somebody on the panel from South Korea because that mm-hmm. would be helpful. Because um, I, I, coming back from the film, I was wondering about how it's perceived in South. So in South Korea. In terms of wealth disparity, fifty um, percent—the low bottom fifty percent of the population has access to two percent of the country's wealth. I mean, that's that's how stark it is. And you know, and one of the things that I think is clear from this movie—I mean, one of the messages that maybe we didn't even need to be told—is being really, really poor and being unemployed and chronically unemployed and having little chance of rising from your miserable station—it doesn't make you a better person. Mm-hmm. It's poopy. It's poopy. It's poopy. It's literally poopy. Yeah, but it doesn't make you a better person, you know. And, and no, so, it just makes you desperate, right? And that's what I was sort of wondering: is how, like, as I watched that movie, I mean, this family, this impoverished family, does some pretty yep. rotten things, betrayals, you know, really rotten things in order to sort of get get the jobs that other people have, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I just wondered how that, like, so I and I had a little bit of a problem with that because, like, they are rotten things. And I think the movie has a little bit of a problem with that too because we certainly are obliged to confront the humanity later of one of the people who loses a job through this you know, nefarious act. But I just wondered whether a South Korean audience would go, oh yeah, sometimes you just got to do stuff like that because yeah. otherwise you're going to be, you know, and, and, I don't know. And America is moving in that direction. It's not as stark yet, but but that is the trend. That's the direction we're moving in. And, and look, the, in the film, they betray members of their own class. But that's exactly how capitalism works. It turns those who who are on the outside against each other because then they don't unite to turn against those who are in power. I think Sorry you're, for I think, you know, yes, my little inequ- Marxist bit. Well, yeah. I think the inequality isn't there yet. But the idea that you know, in order to move forward, we aren't uh, Machiavellian in, in our ways feels a little disingenuous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that – we may smile as we are stabbing someone, but I don't think that our countrymen are just these virtuous, I'm going to keep trying to get ahead on my own accord, uh, and and there are no uh, 
tragedies. There are no mm-hmm. dis- discards. I think there's I think a question of upward mobility, inherent. too. I mean, exactly. They, I think it's inherent in upward mobility. I think that the design, I mean, we read a fascinating article all about the design of the set, and I think the fact that they live in a sub-basement and not a true basement, and later on, without it being a spoiler, you are encountered in another family that live in a true basement, and that disparity, where then at that point, they stand to, they are having visions about taking over this whole house and it being their house, and I think there's a real note about how quickly greed can imbue you with all this justification to continue on a path. At that point, they're making a lot of money. They, you know, more money than they've made folding pizza boxes, which is the first scene in the movie. So I think that that really was the comment that struck me is that how quickly that can corrupt you and turn you into, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I can to get to the top of the pile. I I will tell you that it's a huge hit in South Korea. It's made 10 times as much money uh, uh, in, or maybe seven times as much money. Let's see. No, 10 times as much money in South Korea as it has here. 70.1% point nine million dollars in South Korea. So it is certainly resonating there. It is and the one last thing that I would like to say about it is that and I, I'm sort of the person who typically misses this kind of thing, you know, and we need James or somebody around. But um, I, I think visually this movie is really striking. It is. Mm-hmm. That it house, is. this sort of kind of Korean Philip Johnson kind of glass house that they're in is really, really a fascinating thing and it becomes yeah. a character. Like The a, set design is immaculate. It, yeah, it's like it's the, a character. Yeah, the house is. It's like a living, breathing organism that the whole thing kind of threads through. And then the use, the visual use of the peaches, yeah. it's like Coppola and his oranges yep. or something. Uh, yeah, and the rock that, that Bill was talking about. There's uh, some slow motion sequences accompanied by uh, this very, um, you know, intense kind of classical music. Yes, th- which is originally composed. I thought that was just like Mozart that I didn't deep, know. Deep or cuts of Mozart, yeah. yeah it's like, but really the score is just mind-boggling. Yeah. There are scenes that are, you know, almost ballet-like. Yeah. And scenes that like tap into that traditional horror motif, which when I watched mm-hmm. the trailer, I was expecting like a proper horror movie, more like Us. I think Us definitely had more elements of typical horror that I look for in a horror film. And I don't like scary movies. So I was on the edge of my seat anticipating it to take that turn into true, true horror. And There's it never a certain did. point where you think it's going to yep. and then they – and that had me on, that on the edge of my seat more yeah. so than if it had been a slasher film the whole way through. Yeah. It's a long foreplay. Yeah. Right. But long bo- foreplay. both movies are also very funny. And mm-hmm. They rarely yes. give up on being funny too. Mm-hmm. I mean I was laughing well into you know some of the horrible stuff. Would you call us. this a comedy or a drama? I don't think you would call it anything. You yeah. would kind of you know. In the little blurb in the newspaper, or I'm an old guy, on the web, uh, it says dark comedy thriller. Oh, yeah, I was okay. say the previews would have you suggesting it's a horror yeah. or a thriller. But it's not, so much more the, than like that. Like the previews before the movie. Yes. Would say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Right. And I was yeah. all nervous about that. I'm like, great, I'm going to be watching this movie behind my eye, like fingers. <laughs> this is going to be the worst. But it was not that one at all. So. All right. We should probably stop here. But the movie is Parasite. It's playing in theaters all over the place. It's in wider release now than it was last week. So you should have no trouble seeing it. And I think we mostly think you should. Yeah, you Unless should. we don't. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, go, okay. go see it. Go see it. Hi, my name is Da Song. Kion Wolf was very sick. She was coughing and coughing, so I gave her some peaches, and they just made her cough even more. Anyway, producer Jonathan McPants isn't answering his phone, so my friend Ki Woo came in and produced the show, and I'll continue to do so. 
A part of Bill Curry was played by my uncle, Lee Sun Kuhn. On Monday, Ki Woo will also be producing the scramble, news from politics and sports. And now, back to Colin. All right. Before we do endorsements and recommendations and things like that, I want to remind people, uh, if you haven't been reminded enough already, that our 10th anniversary party for The Colin McEnroe Show will be Wednesday of next week at Black Eyed Sally's. Tickets are $25. You can includes like a drink and some food and stuff. And so get some get your tickets now right at the WNPR.org homepage. Uh, and uh, you can see a little place where you click and get those tickets. And we'd love to see you there. It's really we, we, we're mainly doing this because we want to see the listeners and stuff. And you probably want to see some of these fascinating nose people as well. And a lot of them will be there, although I don't think Bill will be. Uh, I'll be in Baltimore. Uh, uh, anyway, please do that. And now it's time to make some recommendations, endorsements, and stuff like that. Uh, I'm going to save Tanisha for last because a lot of times <laughs> hers are really like – Interestingly abstract. <laughs> Philosophical. I don't want to put a lot of pressure on you. but uh, so Rebecca, I've got two light ones. Okay. Don't worry. My first one is an app endorsement. Um, this is a nerdy app endorsement. It's an app called BirdNet. Quite simple. BirdNet. It's by Cornell Labs. And what it does is you can hold it up and it will record the song of a bird that you are hearing in your backyard. And then it will tell you what that bird is. So it's Shazam for birds. It's Shazam for birds. And it's amazing. I've been amateur bird watching my entire life. And identification by song is something that has eluded me until now. And it's really helping me learn some more songbirds. So BirdNet, nerdy, but great. Not BirdNote. Not BirdNote. I know. Missed opportunity, I thought. But whatever. Cornell's not in the game of puns. Um, and my second one are two books I read over vacation recently. They're light but really well written. They're by Madeline Miller. The first was Song of Achilles and the second was Circe. And mm. they both were lovely reimaginings of these Greek myths we all know so well and love. And I think she did a beautiful job with them. So if you're looking for something relaxing to read, check those two out. Circe's getting all kinds of love all of a sudden. Yeah. Like somebody else did what yeah. did a, It's really a, a good. I really yeah. liked Circe. Song oh. of Achilles was great, but Circe was really exceptional. All right, Bill, what have you got for us? This is this is always the hardest part of the show for me <laughs> just because I feel like there's so much. The political world is in shambles. The environmental world is worse. But I think the cultural world is like really thriving and kicking it. This is going to be a little – it's going to sound a little bit like an advertisement. I think HBO is killing oh. it again on Sunday nights. So good. Watchmen is my so new good. favorite show. I think it's so great. But it's not just Watchmen. I think – even you know, as late in its career, Silicon Valley mm-hmm. is still really sharp, really poking a finger in the eye of big tech. And then the new show, um, Mrs. Fletcher, yeah. it's based on a Tom Parada novel, which I really like, but completely different than The Leftovers. It's a story about a woman and what happens to her, a single uh, a mother, and what happens to her in her life when her son goes off to college. And it's kind of a comedy, but it's also really poignant and I'm just loving it, Mrs. Fletcher. All right, I've doubled down on all of those. I've been doing the same lineup as you. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> all right, Denise, what have you got for us? Well, I feel like you've set this up for me beautifully because you I know, planned that. With with the fall of democracy is a great rise in cultural capital, yeah. yes. and so I'm going to endorse democracy mainly <laughs> because this Michael Bloomberg thing has me wondering whether or not we are going to run in that direction because he feels like the other guy that we may want to get out. Um, And I just want us to be mindful of the potential oligarchical republic we may be setting ourselves up for. Um, And so... 
democracy. She's a fragile girl. She needs to be cared for. Don't she cancel needs to her. Be, don't, don't cancel, cancel her. Democracy. But that means that you have to participate, and that takes yes. a lot of work. And I know sometimes Sunday sedation is a little bit better, but we can do this. I believe it. We can do this. Fantastic right. endorsement. All right. So I'll just sort of build on the um, sedation. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's got an eye patch. That's right. I want to be sedated. Um, so... Um, so, no, I, I would just add that uh, it doesn't drop on Sundays. I think it drops on Mondays. But And it's a little bit more traditional and a little bit impl- implicitly less hip than some of the other stuff that's on HBO. But Helen Mirren is playing Catherine the Great right now. And first of all, you should probably see almost anything Helen Mirren does at this point, um, up to a point anyway. And, and, and the Romanovs are horrible people and I get that. Uh, and it's pretty clear that um, in, in this thing that, that they sort of understand that as well. But it, it is – it's a riveting performance and some of the performances taking place around her performance are also worth watching. So, I mean, I, I'd watch the other stuff that they talked about first probably and I'm more interested in Watchmen right now than I am in Catherine the Great. Uh, and then just a, another thing that I'll quickly uh, endorse partly because we've started exploring it as we're in, – in January, we're going to be doing a, a thing at Watkinson about the life and career and music and, and also singing career of Laura Nero. So Laura Nero is kind of this amazing – uh, songwriter, and it's just interesting. Even if you mention her around a dinner table, like people do stuff. Like I just, I think I just saw Tanisha's head kind of wobble over there. It's like you know, people just sort of uh, they, they. She has a very unusual hold over people who get that music and care about her. But one of the things that we've been also exploring uh, a little bit as we begin to talk about this is that she's also kind of a remarkable singer. Um, and so one of the songs that we're focusing on, and if you come on on Wednesday night, you'll hear it performed by Latanya. Farrell uh, is Going to Take a Miracle, which is a song that was originally, it's actually called It's Going to Take a Miracle. It was actually written for An- Little Anthony and the Imperials. They were having a copyright fight uh, with their people and they wound up not recording it. And then this group of young women from Baltimore called the Royalettes recorded the song and just had kind of a moderate hit with it. And then Laura Nero recorded it and it kind of blew up a little bit. It really got its first big audience. Uh, Partly because she has this kind of – she actually sings it in this really tough key and it, 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 her version of it is really, really interesting. And then as people may remember, Denise Williams actually turned it in years and years later, uh, turned the song into I think a number one R&B hit and top ten I think on the Billboard charts. It's a wonderful song. If you don't do any other Laura Nero stuff this weekend, see if you can find her singing. Uh, it's going to take a miracle. And then come on Wednesday because uh, Latanya's is going to crush it, I happen to know.